Hi, and welcome to the Red Fin Podcast, a podcast where I look to rediscover what makes gaming fun and enjoyable by having positive conversations with those related to the industry. My name is Link, and today I'm joined by Rebecca, developer of upcoming Lauren's Lure, and previously games such as Kill the KOTH, Do, Patch, and as well as Hollowhead. Hi, Rebecca, how are you doing today? Hi, uh, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. And, you know, both of us being in Ontario, I'm in actually in Ottawa. Just wondering how, did you guys get snow today? Uh, I did see a little bit of, uh, you know, like snowflakes outside my window, but there wasn't a layer of snow on the ground. Did you guys have uh, a it, layer? Uh, we, in some places, yeah, definitely on like where the grass is and stuff. We, uh, we had a nice layer of the pavement it, and it stayed off of luckily. Because I think at this point, most people probably have their winter tires gone. Um, but yeah, no, it snowed basically all morning. It was really uh, annoying and terrifying. Um, just because it's the end of April and we shouldn't have snow anymore. Yeah, it's been brutal. This has been a very long winter. <laughs> yeah, I think we're on our like third or fourth false spring at this point. I don't. I stopped counting. Um, but yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to it like looking forward to it to no longer be in the near negatives you know we're we're done with that we should we should be constantly in like the low teens at at the highest point for for at least a, a month or so would be nice oh yeah i'm uh i'm ready to go swimming <laughs> well that you know we're I, I think we're still a few months away from that unfortunately but you know hopefully we get there and it lasts for longer than a few weeks you know amen so, Rebecca, just uh, before we get started, if you don't mind, you know, telling me and anyone else a little bit about yourself so we know who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, so, I'm, I'm not really in the game industry, per se. I'm, uh, I'm sort of uh, like a hobbyist trying to get uh, more professional. And uh, my day job is uh, as a technical product manager. Uh, I used to be an engineer uh, full-time. But uh, yeah, I'm, I've studied computer science as well, so I'm, I'm versed in the engineering side of things. Uh, but I've been like a hobby artist for my whole life, and I sort of just put those two together to uh, start making video games. Uh, I guess that's me in a nutshell. Well, you know, that's great here. And you know, you, you mentioned before we started talking that you have one commercial game, and you have, you know, a handful of other ones that are up on on itch.io and you know lauren's lure coming out i i i don't i you know i understand if you want to call yourself a hobbyist but i think at the same time you know you're you're in the industry and you know it's you, sh you should be able to say that without without worry or concern you know that's my opinion at least that's true maybe it's a bit of imposter syndrome uh you know spilling through but i do have commercial games out yeah and they're on steam and you can buy them so fair enough i i guess i can say i'm uh, in the industry you know, and like I can definitely understand imposter syndrome, and you know, I'm I'm not I'm not inferring that that's what it is or where you where you stand and why why you said that. It's just you know, I think you deserve to to be able to have people acknowledge that you are in the industry at this point. You know, you're releasing a game and all that. You know, I think you deserve that kind of acknowledgement. Well, thank you. <laughs> now, Rubeki, I sorry, I just blanked out there for a minute. Um, now, Rubeki. Um, you mentioned that you know you work you worked as an engineering or in engineering and you know now it's um uh, I forget the the exact technical advisor was it? No, uh, now it's a technical product manager. Thank you. Sorry about that. Technical product manager, and you know those things aren't typically related to the industry. However, you do. You said that you've been like um you know you've been working on on art and everything um on your own for for a while now, uh, you know, and I imagine you know the same for games. So, how did you get into developing and, and making games then? Well, uh, it's it's actually a very long story. <laughs> so, I uh, I did start playing games at a very early age. Um, I had uh, an NES, an SNES, uh, you know, that age. And uh, I never really thought about making games until I saw this one documentary on the Discovery Channel. Uh, I think it was about Turok Oblivion. I don't know if you remember that game. It was like an N64 game. It was the third Turok uh, game in the franchise. 
yeah, it was uh, it was about that. It was about the development of that uh, on the Discovery Channel. And and after I saw that, I saw a bit of the process of how they make it. I saw them do like some coding, some three D art, concept art, and I thought that was really cool. Because uh, before that, I just I really I've been drawing since I was like three. Uh, and then the concept art really impressed me. I, I had never seen something like that before. I've only seen like classic paintings, uh, you know, kind in the museums before that. I thought it was really cool, like drawings of monsters and, and machines and guns and stuff. And uh, I don't know, that struck a chord with me. And then uh, at the same time, uh, my, my dad was a mechanical engineer and he would bring home, uh, not afraid to say this, but pirated 3D software. <laughs> uh, like 3D Studio Max and Maya, and uh, I knew they used those uh, to make the games um, because I saw it in that documentary, and I, I kept like fiddling around with those. And I eventually learned how to do 3D modeling, but I, I could never figure out how to do the programming. Uh, I was like in middle school at the time. And uh, I, I remember this one time where I was playing with 3D Studio Max, and it has its own scripting language in it. And the, the language is just to, uh, I guess, programmatically generate uh, objects and place them, I guess, on in bulk or something like that in the software. It's not for games, but I, <laughs> I kept trying to actually program 3D Studio Max to make games, and and I was very naive at the time. I was like, move left arm <laughs> forward or something like that, which obviously wouldn't work. Uh, but that was, uh, uh, I guess, where the curiosity started. It was all from that documentary. Uh, and then. Uh, later in, in maybe early high school, I found out about Blender. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, it's, it's another 3D software, which is open source and free. You can download it even today. But back then, it had a game engine. And it was a game engine uniquely that uh, did not require programming to work. It used some visual scripting where you just... Uh, uh, you, you registered events and then uh, you, you performed actions. So it's a very simple interface, and you can make some fairly complex games with it. But you couldn't really, you know, compile them or sell them in any way because it was a pretty bare bones, uh, I suppose, engine. Uh, but I, I was still able to, you know, 3D model and uh, visually code a game uh, in Blender for quite a while. Like I, I was, I was doing uh, these small little demos or snippets of demos, nothing ever complete. But I was sort of just learning how to do gameplay and uh, how to model in 3D and, and rig uh, characters and stuff like that. So I was doing that uh, for a very long time. And this was even before Unity was out. So then fast forward to after um, I got my comp sci degree. And uh, I, was, uh, I was in my day job. And then uh, on my day, in my day job, I learned how to do um, basically how to finish projects and how to how to do project planning much more effectively. And then I, uh, I don't know, I, I just had that spark again, that creative spark. And then I just decided to try and make video games full time again uh, because I I saw a lot of uh, uh, projects that were successful on YouTube, or I saw that indie game documentary, for example, and and it looked like it was possible to do. You know, and I, I just wanted to try using these newfound skills in my day job uh, to, to create something more ambitious. Uh, so I did that and I, I kept trying. I learned mm -hmm. Unity and um, uh, over time just made uh, more of these little demos. And then I, uh, I found HIO and there was game jams there and I started to uh, contribute to a few of those, namely the Haunted PS1. Uh, game job jam, and that one uh, sort of connected me to the haunted PS1 community, and uh, I made a small little network there uh, of like some very talented developers, and I just kept going from there. And uh, this community actually convinced me to to pursue uh, this sort of ambitious uh, climbing game, uh, Lauren's Lore, instead of a more safe uh, like horror game, which I was considering as well at the time. And that's, uh, I don't know, that's just so, sort of where I am. I just sort of gradually, over time, accumulated a bunch of these technical skills and artistic skills. And then uh, uh, also the project management skills, and then just decided to put all those together uh, after I was inspired by some of these 
these games coming out by, by very small teams or individuals. And I just wanted to follow suit. And, you know, thank you for sharing that. And that's great to hear because it's always interesting to hear, you know, how people get started, like where, where their inspiration comes from. And yours being from a, uh, from a Turok documentary and showing like all of the, um, all of the concept art and stuff. I think that's really neat just because, uh, because like, I imagine a lot of people get into or are inspired in the same way. You just don't hear about it as often. I just think that's really cool. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, not a problem. I, I still can't even find that documentary. I, I try to find it on YouTube, but I can't. And, you know, I don't, you know, that, you know, it's an N64 game. It wouldn't shock me if that documentary was just lost to the wind, you know, that's just, maybe it exists somewhere, but it's you just sitting on, yeah, yeah, sitting on someone's VHS tape or whatever, waiting for them to, like, pull it off their shelf and go, well, maybe I should put it on YouTube and archive it, right? I hope someone does. <laughs> now, based on your experiences for, for how you got into the industry and such, and, you know, what you've learned, you know, working towards releasing games and making games and everything, is there any advice that you could give to those maybe looking to also make games and such, just based on everything you've learned? Yeah, I, uh, I think I have some good advice I can share. But to to uh, you know disqualify some of it, if if you're trying to get into like a big company as a developer or a designer or or something else, I I, I don't think this advice is good for that. But I think it is good for maybe game designers uh, that want to have like a very small team or they want to release games individually. Uh, I, th I think I have good advice for those people, but uh, not so much people who want to get into like a, like Ubisoft or Microsoft or something like that, making games, because I, I, I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> um, but anyways, to I think to get started in uh, doing something in the indie space, I would start with learning one of these skills, like uh, 3D modeling, uh, or programming uh, or design just to have like a, a, a foundation um, and then I would start with unity or unreal there are other engines but I think these are very good to start with because they have big communities you can learn a lot uh, you can get a lot of help and they have all the tools built in to help you make a game from scratch uh, especially Unity, which has the asset store, and you can start making games really quickly by just getting like a bunch of free assets, piecing them together, and then learning a lot as you go, like building tools. So I think, uh, in terms of the more specific advice, I would, I would like to tear it into a few levels. So if you imagine skill levels in an, in, an, in a game of some kind or uh, or an RPG, like uh, level one, you, I would I would try to make a bunch of small snippets of gameplay. So this this is similar to what I did uh, in Blender when I first learned uh, how to make games, where you would you like you wouldn't even make a complete demo. You just have a jumping character or like a character that tries to walk through a door or triggers a trap and gets like thrown away. Then level two, you would do like some more complete demos, uh, which could be like sections of a more ambitious game. Uh, maybe like one level in a shooter where you kill like three enemies, find a key, and then exit through the door. Uh, or maybe um, a racetrack. Uh, you get to start from, from the start to the finish, and then uh, you get like a time or something like that. And then level three, I would say maybe join a game jam. Take some of the tools that you develop in like these first two levels and uh, apply them to to like a theme in uh, in a small scope, but uh, within a time limit. And that's the benefit of these game jams. At the same time, you can network uh, here. You can find some uh, like let's say you're a programmer, you can find some artists or vice versa. And uh, you, you can 
you can get more exposure for your projects and for your profile as well. So this is something I did with uh, uh, with my brand. I uh, like I had a small viral game called Hollowhead that was developed as a game jam game. So you can get uh, more followers this way, and it's a good way to start building a profile uh, on top of just practicing making the game. Uh, and then beyond this, uh, if you have like a few jams under your belt, a bunch of these demos, you'll have like a, a nice tool set that is read readily available for you anytime you want to start a project. So then what you can do in, uh, in the next level, level four, uh, you can try to release an actual game, like try to make a, a fairly short game, like let's say one that's 10 minutes, uh, one that can be completed uh, you know, from start to finish, has a menu, uh, maybe like collectibles, more complex gameplay, but something that is done. And then uh, you could even put this on itch.io, like try to actually sell it. And then uh, level five is, I would say the final one, just keep increasing the scope of your projects. So you just keep releasing ones that are slightly larger or more uh, ambitious than the next. And then beyond that, uh, I, I guess marketing is pretty important. So maybe during, uh, I don't know, level four, where you're starting to make these small games, uh, you can start building a Twitter profile, a Discord, and a YouTube. I would say those are the minimum. And then anytime you you finish like a one gameplay component or maybe a level, you you have to make a habit of posting right after you're you're done to show it to to people, to get feedback and and just attract more people to to your uh, to your profiles because th those people are like your core audience and uh, this is how you you very slowly keep accumu accumulating people uh, to your to your brand and project and it gives more chance of success to your next ones uh, yeah that's uh, I think that's a good way to get started I would say Awesome. Well, thank you for that. You know, I really like the approach for thinking about it in terms of like leveling up because, um, you know, it's outlining like your approach to it. And, you know, well, while it may seem very similar to everyone else's, which I'm not saying in that in a negative way, it's, it's fantastic that a lot of people have a, a similar kind of approach. Hearing the way that you break it down or what have you is just really interesting just because. You know, it kind of gamifies making a game, and I just think that's neat. So thank you for for putting it all that way. And I think the um, I think the game jam approach is really fantastic because you know I've spoken to a few people that have started with game jams, and you know they they didn't have anything bad to say about them, which typically is the case because game jams are you know fantastic ways for you to uh you know for you to have like a spec given to you and then work within the spec so that way you know you're not exactly trying to think of everything you need to do. You're just trying to think of how to do what you're told to do. And I, I mean that in like a good way, because if you're told that you're, you know, your goal is to make a, a vehicle driving game, you know, that, that might take the pressure off of you for trying to figure out, you know, that what kind of game to make. Or if the, the spec is, you know, where we're going to do, uh, you know, like PlayStation 1 style graphics or horror game or what have you, uh, it just... I imagine that just makes it much easier and less daunting if you are, you know, kind of new to the scene and just trying to figure out what you want to do or how to approach it. Uh, I yeah, don't know it, if that's the case for you, though. No, it was. I mean, it, it takes a lot of the decisioning out of it, and it helps you limit scope creep. Because, okay, you only have three days to make a game, so then I can't add, you know, a multiplayer. I can't, uh, uh, I can only have, like, one mechanic. You know, I can shoot and open doors. Or, uh, or like you said, the, the PS1 graphics. So I know exactly, you know, the uh, the type of assets I need to find on like opengameart.org. <laughs> you know, it, it limits the scope for you. Because one thing I've I've read a lot about, and I was subject to this as well, is when I was designing my own games, uh, it, it's very easy to, uh, I guess, fall prey to scope creep, right? Like you. you Keep thinking of great ideas during during the process of making it, and you just want to redo everything. So 
So the game jams help you control that and build a habit of controlling that. On top of other things, there's so many benefits for doing a game jam. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm not too on the up and up with game jams. Um, you know, I, I follow them kind of every now and then. I know they exist. So I'm not really too aware of the other benefits, but like you said, I, I don't doubt that there is that there are a lot of them. I you know I imagine the community itself would be fantastic because, you know, like you said as well, you, you, you get a chance to meet other people and network. And, you know, if you find that you're really good at doing X and someone else is really good at doing Y, you know, you can meet up and work on something together. So, like, I imagine that as well is is invaluable for, for trying to figure out uh, what you want to do or what you're capable of or, or what direction or what have you, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, even on top of just finding people to complement your skill set, one of the biggest benefits is that you're in a community of people who like to do the same thing. And then you keep encouraging each other, right? You keep playing each other's games, like offering feedback, uh, even technical support <laughs> in some cases. And I, I don't know, I found that invaluable. I, it was, it, it's a great experience. And yeah, you know, that as well, that's a, a great thing to hear because having, uh, you know, I don't think anyone is ever going to look at a positive, like a supportive and positive community and think of that as a as a bad thing and it's great to hear that you know as you participate and you you know become part of that community and everything that everyone sort of you know helps each other and has each other's back and it was is supportive i think that's just a great thing to hear because you know uh times aren't always great people aren't always going through the best of times or or uh you know their their personal life or what have you and being able to find a hobby that you can do or a project or whatever and work on and be met with positive support i think it's just fantastic like i think that's just a good thing for for everyone involved right absolutely yeah and the game development community just uh, in general is so supportive i find it, not just in you know random discord servers but also in on twitter uh, I, I follow a lot of game developers on twitter and everyone's just so friendly you know they just reach out on on messages and, and say what they like about your game or give feedback everyone like shares each other's work and i don't know it's just such a wholesome environment <laughs> in my opinion yeah and you're you're absolutely correct you know or i should say i i agree with everything you're saying uh because you know when i first started you know wanting to do this podcast i started looking into you know twitter and and you know developers and everything more and more and more and that is 100% something that i also saw is that you know the the community is you know, the, the game dev community, whether they're professionals, whether they're, you know, just starting out indies or students or, you know, people that are in the middle or or big, small, like whatever, whatever you want to quantify or, or, or whatever. Right. Um, they everyone always just seems to be so supportive. I, you know, every now and then you see some of a bad take every now and then you see, you know, some stuff that's maybe not the most supportive, but it's largely you know, is people react like reacting to what they all seem to agree on is is bad advice or is, you know, a bad what what have you. And it's, you know, largely everyone's just so supportive, like you've said. And I just think that's absolutely fantastic. Like it's just being able to see that for as an outsider is just is just awesome. And I think I, I hope it continues. Um and I hope that, you know, it, it's not something that's just like this small snapshot of here and now if that makes any sense. No, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, it might also have to do with, you know, the size of the industry and, and whatnot. Like, uh, at least I notice this in, in my network where there's just uh, mostly indies, uh, small to mid-sized uh, developers. But I, I don't know if this is the same in AAA. Like, as you said, there have been hot takes and, and whatnot. <laughs> yes. Um, and you know as well, because you're, you're in the Toronto area, and I know that right now, maybe the Toronto scene isn't as strong as it used to be, as I've spoken of some other Toronto developers. But I don't know how, how familiar or active you are in the Toronto scene or the, you know, the Ontario scene or what have you. But, you know, I imagine as things open up more and, and, everyone, and all that, I imagine, you know, it's just even, even better, even easier if you can find a group in your own personal area so that way it's it's even more personal in in a in a sense 
Yeah, you know, I uh, I try to uh, be more a part of this community, but it's it it, it did kind of die down with COVID. Uh, like I went to this very cool event called Dirty Rectangles, um, and uh, that was a great time. And then COVID happened, and it didn't happen anymore except for on Twitch. But I I really like the in-person uh, experience. That that was nice, and uh, I just hope that happens again. Yeah, so do I, because you know I I I think anything that helps developers, regardless of their their level or what have you, I think that's just a fantastic thing, and I look forward to people being able to get access to more of more just more good support. Yeah, I agree. Now, Rebecca, I do kind of want to change it up a little. I want to talk uh, a little bit about you know your past, maybe, and. What was like you know more so? What was your favorite game or games as a child? And what about those? Like what about that game or games or what have you? Was like what made it your favorite or made them your favorite? Uh, I think the the one that stands out the most is uh, Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time. Uh, I think even when I first saw the commercial, it just uh, like on TV, it just struck a chord with me it just seemed so epic and it was in 3d and like i don't know it has you know the knights and the swords and like the fire breathing monsters and everything that just uh, struck a chord with me but when i actually played it it has such a unique feeling uh it's i don't know the the gameplay simple it's it's atmospheric uh the the music is so memorable uh the characters i remember are memorable and just very simple. They they just I don't know say a few lines, but the I don't know the style and and precisely what they say is almost like poetic in in, in some cases. That it, it I don't know it just really stuck with me. Uh, it just felt like a, an epic journey. But I think the yeah just maybe the fact that I played it at a young age at the right time it just it just really stuck with me a lot. But Zelda or Ocarina of Time is definitely my favorite game. And you know, like I'm not, I'm not gonna say anything against Ocarina of Time. I'm, it would be almost sacrilege, I think, given my namesake, for me to speak out against such a fantastic game or try to play devil's advocate or anything. I don't mean with just with you. I mean in general. And you know, I I agree completely. You know, I I the first time I remember seeing the commercials for Ocarina of Time as well, it was. Like, I don't remember, like, the exact layout and all that stuff, but I remember, like, the, the snippets of it and, you know, the, the, the feeling it gave and, like, the, the excitement it created. And the first time I actually played it, it was in a, um, in a Toys R Us at, like, the demo booth kind of thing. And it, it absolutely left me floored just because, you know, this was the early days of 3D and, you know, anything in 3D at that point you were going to be amazed by. But just the the look of it, and as you said, like kind of the atmosphere and the because it was a demo and I was just playing whatever, like the intrigue of it, it had me hooked. And you know, I'm I'm just saying so that I I understand completely, and you know, I I I think anyone who tries to speak otherwise of it, I think is kind of silly. Um, and you know, if you haven't played it recently, I it relatively does hold up, you know. So I don't want to. I don't want to speak for you or on your on your behalf or what have you, but I I would argue that it probably wasn't a matter of the time of playing it, just that it was a you know kind of like a gold standard of a game, if that makes any sense. I mean, yeah, it's like I think for its time it was seen as award winning or, or something, but uh, yeah, it it definitely stands out, and I tried to pick apart. Maybe some other design uh, choices while I was trying to design Lauren's lore because I did want some of that feel uh, in my game. And uh, I, I think the simple atmospheric effects and the music might have uh, had a huge contribution uh, to the memorability of the game. I, I think they they really hit the nail on the head with the atmosphere. But the like, if you notice, the music is very simple. There's like variations on the themes, even across Zelda games. They they keep using the same uh, same jingles, so to speak, just slightly varied. And uh, I don't know. They they 
they use it to such good effect that it just stays in your head. <laughs> yeah. I try like not to not to cut you off, but I I understand what you're saying, and yeah, like I don't, you know, I I think part of it's supposed to be like you know if it's your first Zelda game, you're gonna be oh yeah, it's nice music or whatever. But if it's like your second, your third, your fourth, your tenth, having that music could you know I don't I don't understand the psychology of it. I don't know if it's intentional, but if for me it's kind of like a callback, and it's playing like playing like um you know a newer Zelda game versus playing an older one. It's kind of like it pulls in terms of um, how I feel about the game, like the 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 not the game feel but like the nostalgia feel or what have you it kind of like pulls all of these different things out and flattens them out and it like just sort of builds up on top of it all and that's for me so i don't know if that's something other people would feel i don't know if that's what their intent is it wouldn't shock me if it was because you know why else would they continuously do such the, like do such a callback but but yeah no i i agree completely you know it's the the atmosphere was was fantastic like some of the simple things they do whether it was because of hardware limitation or whatnot and like and the music and you know with that in mind as well do you um what was your favorite what was your favorite like dungeon from it just because i'm curious probably the uh shadow temple obviously i'm, I'm into horror but yeah okay but... that makes perfect sense yeah but just speaking of atmosphere like that that game uh had just about every type of emotion I, I feel like the shadow temple was horror uh, for instance right like most of the things in the in the adult world had this this uh horror tinge and then in the child's world is more like you know upbeat sort of adventure feel and i think that contrast gave it so much character like uh, specifically with the shadow temple if I remember correctly, you had to do something as the child link. You had to go into a well where there was a bunch of these re-deads, which are like zombies that scream at you. And uh, I just remember the atmosphere there. It was, it's like so thick. It, it, like above, it's just a regular village. And then you go into the well, and then all of a sudden, the atmosphere completely changes. And I was younger then, and I was like, oh, man, I don't want to go forward, <laughs> you know? Uh, it, it just it it was so effective at changing the the feel. I don't know. I really like that. Yeah, you know, I know exactly what you're saying, and I I agree. Like the for me, I I wasn't a fan of the Shadow Temple, and that's it's kind of you already nailed it. You already spoke to it. And it's because of kind of the like the horror level of it, or what the you know what it was what they were aiming to do, and it always had me uncomfortable. You know, the whole package, like the 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 design of it. Um, the the kind of the darkness of certain parts of it and then the the music as well was really um it kept me on edge and i you know obviously that speaks to you know the the design choice like them doing such a great job but you know for me that that was my least favorite dungeons um again different strokes for for everyone and all that and understandable and you know i but it, i i agree like i understand the the, the like how how good that dungeon was like everything about it you know and what you're saying in that uh, the beginning of the game versus the end or part one of the game versus part two or what have you like that everything was was designed with with thought and principle and executed well yeah and uh, i think the atmosphere while you play the game is more important than like in uh, it's more important in generating emotions while you play the game than like the actual story arc because I, I I found the story arc very unmemorable. You know, it's just a princess in distress. Uh, you know, there's that sequence where uh, Ganon is riding out of the castles and and he like steals Zelda. I I felt like nothing during that. <laughs> but while you actually play the game, you know, there there's all this variable emotions, and that's actually what stays with you. Like the arc was terrible in that game. <laughs> it's very simple. <laughs> Bad guy steals princess. It's like Mario. <laughs> It's almost exactly the same. It, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna argue that that Zelda's that the stories for Zelda have ever been the the high point. You know, obviously they've gotten better over the years, and obviously um, some of them are a little better thought out in terms of how they're presented or or what have you. Uh, but yeah, no, I agree completely that you know it's it's 
always was more about the journey and like what you're going to experience and how it's going to make you feel. Uh, I think in my mind, Majora's Mask really nailed that home in terms of um, how, you know, how there were so many different characters and, and, you know, it was based on trying to make you feel different things and, and all of that um, where they kind of just ramped up Ocarina of Time by a whole, whole bunch. Yeah, that one had a distinct feel on its own. I feel like that was, I don't know if I were to put it towards maybe a little more, uh, not psychedelic, but darker, uh, effed up yeah. than uh, Ocarina of Time. So that was pretty expertly done as well. Like the whole mood of it was, was shifted, even though they used the exact same assets. Uh, I think a lot of the same music too. Um, and very like exactly the same graphical style. I think even this exact same NPCs, like the characters, <laughs> uh, a, a lot of them were the same. But they just using the same assets did so such a they get they got such a different vibe. Yeah, definitely. You know, it was a very very unique and very different direction. And yeah, you're. I think you know I'm not I'm not an expert on this, but I think something probably like at least like 80% of the NPCs or whatnot are probably, uh, or assets, sorry, are probably lifted straight from Ocarina of Time, which is also why they were able to flip it out the door in, you know, in, what, I think a year in plus or minus or something like that. Um, so yeah, you know, an asset flip that did really well, I guess would be the best way to hand wave Majora's Mask. So back, uh, sorry. Well, uh, just to answer the rest of your question, I guess you 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 said may, maybe other games as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely Mario sixty four, uh, Resident Evil two, uh, Jet Force Gemini. Um, I think more unique ones, but uh, I can't right now. But yeah, those ones uh, definitely were. I think some of my favorites. You know, seeing Resident or hearing Resident Evil Two, that doesn't really surprise me. If you if you're a fan of horror, um, Resident Evil Two, right? Resident Evil, any I think anyone that likes horror and video games has likely or should at least at this point um, enjoy Resident Evil in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. Back before it was, you know, like a more of an action movie type of thing. Yeah, but you know, I'm. I played Devil's Advocate about I think it was Resident Evil Five. You know, you you get chased by a zombie T Rex apparently. Like I I didn't play that that uh that story path unfortunately, but you know as much action story as it can be or whatever, a zombie T Rex is pretty wild and pretty awesome. I think. All for the schlock, but I mean it's uh <laughs> yeah I I just prefer the horror version of it. Oh yeah, I love the, I love the schlock, but it's uh. I feel like they're two completely different things. Yeah, you know, I can I can understand that, and I I don't disagree. If and it's nice to see that with what they're doing now, the the kind of like returning home with it being, uh, with it being like a horror game again. And I you know I haven't played the newer ones, but them being real like really horror games. Yeah, likewise, I haven't uh, played the new ones, but they do look interesting. So, Rebecca, you know, I, I, you know, I, I agree. Like, you know, all those games were fantastic. I remember playing some of them when I was when I was younger. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time on Resident Evil, uh, just because I had a sixty four, and I remember the sixty four version was kind of, um, not full to the extent, or you know. It's amazing that they were able to get it on there, but I um I never actually picked it up or played it. But you know, based on that and based on the games that you are making, um, or with the I wanna say from what I've gathered and what I've seen, um, the atmosphere and such about them. Um, so that might be leading into, you know, this next question, but what is it about games that makes them enjoyable to you? Um so I like, I guess, two vastly different types of games. I like these atmospheric adventure type of games. 
and I like uh, highly skilled first-person shooters. Uh, I, I don't know why these two in particular, but um, I guess for the atmospheric games, uh, if I were to try to dissect them, I think what makes these fun is, is how immersive they are. Like, I, I want to feel like I am the character, not necessarily watching a movie, uh, like, you know, a lot of cutscenes or something like that. You know, I like I like when I'm completely immersed. So, like in Zelda, for example, uh, the character doesn't say anything. Uh, I'm in control to explore everything. So yeah, uh, immersion is number one, where you feel like you are exploring a virtual space rather than you know just watching a, a pseudo movie being played out. Um, where like you, you can't even identify with with the character you're playing. Uh, another one is the emotion. So like we talked about in in, uh, in Zelda, where it's heavily atmospheric and that makes you feel a certain way. Maybe there's many different types of emotions throughout the game, and it's not really the cutscenes that drive that. It's it's more of the uh, like how you're actually experiencing the virtual world. So to give an example in Zelda, you know, it's like you don't really care when Zelda's kidnapped. You you don't actually feel like, oh no, this major event is happening. But when you're in the well uh, with the zombies, you're like, oh man, I really don't want to keep going further, right? Or if like you're in the Hyrule Town Market at night, just talking to folks, you're just, you know, in a calm state of mind and just wondering why these people are out in the street at night. So yeah, the emotions uh, matter a lot, but they have to be there in a natural way. And then uh, it should make you curious. Like, uh, I gotta say, like Dark Souls, uh, it's it's great, but it did not make me curious enough to go past the difficulty curve. So I I really want like I have to really want to know what's next. You know what I mean? So that's for the atmospheric games. And then for the highly skilled first-person shooters, uh, I mean, I think maybe just two things here. So the environment has to be clear and uh, readable. You have to be able to see where you're shooting. You have to be able to see where you're like uh, stepping and uh, who the players are versus the environment. And then it has to have tight controls. I hate shooters where there's like lag to getting up to full speed or I don't know, the player moves in a very realistic manner, but they can't quite get it right. And then, I don't know, the, the hands are clipping through walls and all this stuff. It just really, uh, it really takes me out of the game. <laughs> like, I need to have uh, immediate control. Like, when I have the input, the character should go in that direction. I don't want any lag. I don't want realistic animations getting in the way. I need that feel. Uh, and that's what makes it addictive for me. Like one example is uh, Apex Legends. Uh, everyone keeps saying that the movement is very tight in that, but I, I just can't get get the feeling I want with it. It's it's not immediate. It, there's like a, an acceleration time or a, a lag until you get to full speed, and that kills me. I can't stand that. That alone is enough for me not to play that game. But something like Half-Life One is instant, and every like you can kind of get a feel for the bounds of the player and that just makes it all the, the much better for me. So yeah, those two types of games, those I feel are the criteria that would make it enjoyable for myself. And you know, that's all really fair. And like, I think uh, I understand what you're, what you're saying when it comes to like movement, because you know, it's other people, like everyone has their own, their own idea of game feel. Right. And I can I can definitely relate to sometimes, you know, some people saying, oh, the movement in this is fantastic or the gunplay in this is fantastic or what have you. But if it just doesn't line up with like your own sensibilities and, you know, your the the game feel that you enjoy, I can definitely understand how how that would be, you know, off putting uh, or or harder to get into a game when it's just not there for you. Right. Yeah, my criteria is, is heavily around the game feel. Um, and maybe that is specific to me, I don't know. But uh, 
I, I personally just need that immediate response. I, I can't stand uh, realism. <laughs> Fair enough. So no, no uh, military sims for you is what you're really saying. I don't want to press a button for crouch and then like wait two minutes until like you know they adjust their pants or something. I can't. I can't <laughs> go crouch prone and then on your stomach or what have you. So Rebecca, just um, no. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I want to kind of let you get on with your with your evening and relax from from the day. Uh, however, I do have a another question. If you you know if you don't mind, not at all. So outside of games, you know, outside of making games or playing games or what have you, you know, what other hobbies might you have and enjoy? If you're okay of sharing such a thing. Yeah, sure. Um, these days, uh, because I work a lot, uh, majority of my leisure time is spent binging YouTube videos. And hanging out with my wife. So, um, yeah, I, I use YouTube as like a music discovery tool. I watch game dev documentaries, uh, speedruns, esports, uh, kitchen nightmares, <laughs> and uh, parkour videos, obviously. Uh, if I'm more active, I, I like I enjoy ping pong uh, and badminton. And I might get into tennis this summer because there's like a tennis court nearby. I just moved, by the way. And uh, during COVID, I, uh, like my wife and I got into a habit of just going out for long drives and just chatting, getting a coffee from uh, Timmy's. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, I used to do a lot more like artsy things like i used to play guitar a lot more i used to do uh, painting drawing uh, digital painting and i used to watch a lot of films but i don't really do this stuff anymore because uh, the game development is sort of taking up most of my time uh, which i don't mind i mean it's i have a triage and uh, i don't do this anymore but i used to actually do parkour back in university i might want to get back into that though because i need to get into shape Well, you know, and you know, on the on the topic of parkour, I don't I don't know about you know the Toronto area. I suspect there should be at some point, um, because you know the town I used to live in, there was a club that did it. So I imagine you know there there could be or should be one in Toronto. I uh, the one that uh, was that existed near me, they actually used to go to a um, um like a. I'm just gonna call it like a, a a gym, but it wasn't like a workout gym. It was like a um a trampoline or a like a gymnastics kind of gym, and right. they would do everything there and set up uh set up little courses on um out of like the foam stuff and everything. So, you know, hopefully there's something like that. Just because, based on what you've said, I'm I'm presuming you're around my age, and. Uh, I personally would be very scared of taking a uh, taking a half wall to the knee or what have you at my age. I'd be much more comfortable taking a half foam padded wall to the knee and being able to roll off of that instead of go to the hospital. That's one of the reasons I stopped actually, because I was uh, I was like, you know, my future is at a desk. Uh, why am I doing this? But uh, there are a lot of lower risk things you can do that aren't, you know are still really good exercise and you won't end up going to the hospital. Um, but that being said, I am uh, aware of a gym. Uh, it's called a monkey vault. Uh, I think it's still around, but, uh, but yeah, when I learned, I learned, uh, on the streets. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm okay taking a bit of risk. Well, hopefully, you know, hopefully once the weather warms up, you know, you and your wife can get into trying out, uh, that tennis court. I, I you know if you like if you like ping pong and badminton, I imagine you'll you'll also enjoy tennis. And you know, I played a little bit of tennis. It's always fun just to try and smack the hell out of a ball and see what happens. So hopefully it's something you guys can get into and enjoy. Yeah, a bit more age appropriate too. <laughs> a a little, you know. Uh I think I think that's what people expect as you get older, right? To to take up, you know, hobbies that they would have taken up when they were that age but you don't always have to feel that kind of pressure you can do whatever you want exactly now Rebecca, i would be remiss if i didn't talk a little bit about your game 
you know, because you've taught, you've touched on it and you've kind of danced around it with the parkour comment, uh, which makes perfect sense for your for Lauren's Lure and your other games. From what I've, you know, when I was looking into them, uh, you know, there seems to be a climbing element persistent or present in in a few, at the very least. Uh, where is it? You know, outside of you know what whatever would have came from being inspired by parkour. But what was it that made you want to make uh, climbing games? Well, uh, so while I was learning Unity, uh, while I was learning to develop games, I just thought of, like, I kept trying to reduce the scope of my project, so I just thought of the simplest game I could possibly make, um, and that ended up being uh, Hatch, which is, uh, is a game that just uses the standard Unity... Um, uh, first-person uh, character controller. Uh, although I, I did have to slightly modify it so that you can climb large angles. But I just thought of the simplest possible game uh, gameplay that still feels good and is fun to play. Um, and I, I was partly inspired by getting over it. And I just thought of, you know, what's even simpler than that. And, and it's just a first-person uh, jump map, effectively. Um, but the climbing picks, uh, that, uh, that was a little more deliberately thought out. I, I wanted to make like a game where I, I'm, like I'm exploring a big infinite mega structure. And I, I couldn't think of ways to actually traverse it uh, without like putting stairs everywhere. Um, so I, I just kept uh, iterating and thinking about ways that you could go vertically uh, and still be fun. And uh, the climbing picks, uh, I don't know what sparked that idea, frankly, but it just came to mind at some point. Uh, and I made a game called Do for a, a game jam. And then uh, people liked it, and I wanted to iterate on it. And I made Kill the Coth, uh, which is like a better version of that mechanic. And then people like that too. And I was like, hmm, you know, maybe I'm onto something here. And then I just, uh, I went back to an old idea that I had. And I just added this mechanic to it because it fit, fit really well with uh, the theme and the, uh, the concept. And then uh, rest is Lauren's lore. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's pretty cool to hear just because uh, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not mean this in a negative way. But when I first looked at it, my first thought was, you know, this is a guy that played a lot of climb maps from like Counter Strike One Point Six or or Source or what have you. But it's it's interesting to hear that you know that doesn't seem to be the case, and that's you know it's just pretty neat because it's uh, in my my mind a lot of like climbing games like that, because um, you know there are a few other ones and they all seem to have like the same trappings of of you know climb maps from Counter Strike games or older. Uh, like Unreal games or what have you, because I, I, I highly doubt that was unique to, to Counter-Strike. But, you know, it's it's great to know that it's actually just, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but kind of like a, a climbing a climbing simulator instead of like a walking simulator, maybe? No, that's exactly how I would, I would put it. I think I even, in the early design documents, I uh, the idea was labeled as that, like a climbing simulator. Because originally it was supposed to be just a walking simulator. And then uh, I added the third third dimension, and then I was trying to solve that problem of how do you traverse in 3D. <laughs> so it is exactly a climbing simulator. <laughs> but uh, after I released Hatch, uh, some someone from the Haunted PS1 community uh, introduced me to the, these KZ climb maps. And then from that, I kept exploring. And I found like these surf maps. I found um, uh, Quake Defrag. And then uh, there's uh, Minecraft parkour maps. So there's there's a whole you know a community around this stuff, and uh, I just found that really cool. And I watched a lot of these videos to see how they play, and I tried to capture the feeling, um, of of witnessing that. Not necessarily capturing how you actually play a climb map or a surf map, because I I did try it, and it's insanely difficult. <laughs> I couldn't I, I I couldn't do that. So yeah, I I didn't want it to be that hard. Uh, I wanted to feel like you're, you know, some kind of uh, a movement guru uh, while you play Lorenzlor, but uh, 
not actually have it be as difficult as a climb map because it is yeah it's worse than dark souls <laughs> it's so thank you for for taking that mentality for that approach uh i through college i played a lot of climb maps and a lot of surf maps on on source and um you are absolutely correct some of them are absolutely bananas in the kind of difficult things you need to do and you know at some point you really quickly find your personal wall for what you're capable of doing um you know in in surf maps it's always it's always you know learning you don't know how to maintain or get the speed consistently and in climb maps it was always learning that you are unable to you know float magic yourself around a square <laughs> kind of thing to the other side and it was always frustrating because you know uh, the 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 joy of finishing those maps was always was always like the reward it was always so rewarding to do you know the cool things and get to the end and experience all of it and you know i was you know for at one point when i did try the the demo for lauren's lure i was oh, okay this is challenging i wasn't able to figure it out but you know when i booted the game up again i'm like oh i'm i was being stupid i wasn't looking at it from the right direction i was thinking it was more complex than it than it really was and you know it's it was really rewarding to figure it out and it was really rewarding to get to experience more of it and i hope i really hope that um you know that your approach for what you're trying to do as a as a climbing simulator uh you know that you're able to capture or not capture that you're able to get people that you know might not have played a lot or been good at you know those climbing game uh, climbing whatever levels maps whatever game they came from the terminology they use uh, and I'm, ho I'm hoping you're able to get you know those people to enjoy it and i'm also hoping that you're able to get the you know the way more experienced people to enjoy it because well i imagine they will because it's you know if they're if they're playing you know the hardest hazy maps or Minecraft parkour or whatever their community is if they're doing enjoying those I imagine they'll enjoy yours so I I think they'll be an easy sell but I'm really hoping you know that everyone is able to enjoy your game because I personally really like the demo I'm looking forward to it I'm looking forward to getting to support you when you release it and I you know I hope that it finds success because you know there isn't a lot of climbing simulators uh, at least that I'm aware of and or I shouldn't say simulators, but y you know what I mean. Um, but like, I think that that genre, that approach or what have you, I think it could be really interesting. And I, I hope that you find success in it. And I hope that it's something that, you know, people are able to enjoy. So maybe we can see more of them or maybe we can see you make more of them or, or what have you, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, it's uh, it's a problem I see in many games, uh, which I feel the climbing mechanic solves, which is not really utilizing the 3D space uh, very well. Like you see massive, cool vistas in a lot of sci-fi games, but like it's it's always bound to a, a simple path. Um, and and yeah, the this 3D traversal sort of solves that. And I I also hope to see more games do this. Uh, yeah. So, Rebecca, like I said before, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, however, you know, if there was, you know, if there was something else you want to discuss or maybe a cool game or something else you're doing or talk more about what you're doing or something you just feel more people should be aware of, by all means, the floor is yours. As well as please let everyone know where they can find any more information about you, which I'll also include in the episode description so they can easily just click through it. What else to discuss? I mean, I guess in terms of uh, of the game, it's uh, like I aim to release it uh, maybe in uh, July, but I'm not really killing myself to hit that deadline because uh, I mean it's just me working on this. I don't have any, I don't owe anybody, you know, a release date. So <laughs> uh, I'm just sort of taking my time to make something of a decent quality. But July. Uh, and if not then, sometime this year, I hope to release the game. Until then, you can check out the demo uh, on Steam right now. It's also titled a prologue. So Lawrence Lure colon prologue. You can find it there. And uh, hit me up on Twitter uh, at underscore Rebecca. Um, you should be able to find all the information you need from there. 
yeah, that's all. Well, awesome. And yeah, I'll definitely include include the, the link to the prologue for sure. That way anyone that's interested, they should be interested, can check it out and, you know, enjoy it. Uh, you know, I, I've recommended it to a few people as well, personally, and they were able to, to get into it. I don't know how far they got, mind you, but, you know, they were, I, I have managed to make some people play it, is, is really the short and long of that, I think. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Rebecca, if there isn't anything else you want to discuss or throw out there, I will let you get back to your Wednesday evening. Cool, yeah, that's uh, that's all I got. Thanks, ah. uh, thanks for the chat. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much. You know, the pleasure was all mine, and I really appreciate you letting me steal your free time. My pleasure. So thanks again, Rebecca, for making the time to have this conversation with me, and thank you for joining us on the Red Tuning Podcast, as well as a special thanks to Ron Jenkins for the use of music from the title track from Road Steep. And if you like this podcast and want to support it and help it grow, please subscribe or follow me on Twitter at Red Tunic Podcast to receive the latest episodes and news, and be sure to share it with those you also think might enjoy it. Thanks, and until next time.